Aloha, and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today's interview is a little unusual because I'm talking to my son, Tobias, or Toby as I call him, and he is the assistant director of CVEX, a program at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. If you would prefer to watch a video that includes the slides that go with this conversation, just go to youtube.com, search on AI in interpretation, reflections on interpretation, Tim Merriman. You should find the video we have just uploaded that includes our slides. Toby's job at the university is to help faculty use AI and related technologies to improve their teaching and uh, work with young people. I am interested in how it can be used in interpretation. I hope you'll stay with us through the first eight or nine minutes of this as we talk about where these different AI programs and sources come from, because we're going to actually use it to write themes, to write titles, to write measurable program scope objectives, and even how to design the text for a sign. So it'll be a chance for you to get a look at how it could be applied in interpretation. Tell me, son, how many years have you been there now in the SIU staff? 28. 28. And what yep. are you? What were you doing right before you started this new job about a month ago? I was hiring, training, and managing IT support professionals. And I was, we call it an SME, the subject matter expert on Macs. Apple Macintosh computers and Alienware gaming PCs. And everything changed radically for you a month or so ago. Yeah. Yeah. It started to change about a year ago when we got this new Dean who came in and sort of saw the work I was already doing with a couple of our professors that are studying AI, VR, um, AR, that's virtual reality, augmented reality and gamification. And he sort of saw that we were doing this scattershot attempt at modernizing the school from the bottom up. And of course, that doesn't work super well. And he said, let's redo it from the top down and bring all these different programs under one roof. That's what the CVEX is. So you're the assistant director of CVEX, and mm -hmm. uh, you'll be helping professors and other staff, uh, departmental programs get better at using AI, VR, and you, you named one other thing. Gamification. I promised the dean that I would upgrade the firmware of the brains of our faculty and staff. Cool. And he knew what firmware is, so. He did. He's a poet by his original degrees, but he's also an ex-Air Force guy. And he is, he came here under the promise that he would be able to change the world. He, he sort of reminded me of a young Tim Merriman senior uh, who had lofty goals of fixing a lot of the things that you saw broken with the education system. And, and Jody is his name, Jody Murray. He came here thinking they've got this distance ed money. I'm going to use that. I'm going to modernize them, teach them new stuff. We're going to all get better together. Of course, as soon as he got here, they said, we, we oopsied and lost the $2 million budget you were promised you would be able to deploy. Uh, but he's a fighter. He went out and fundraised enough to get us off, get us on our feet. And so here we are about six months later. 
So you're upgrading a smart classroom to actually be a center where you can train people in AI gamification, these other yes. parts. The experimental classroom is an idea I've had for years. And I remembered, I, at some point I realized that I had really poor results with myself as a student in a conventional classroom. 20 seats facing the same way with a lecture did not work for me, even when I really wanted it to, even when I liked the subject and the professor. And you reminded me that just as a child, if we were, if you were leading a tour through a reptile exhibit, I would absorb everything. I remembered scientific names of reptiles and birds, and it just wasn't a conventional classroom, but I learned constantly from frankly the interpreters around me so when it when they wanted to design a new classroom that focused on neurodivergent individuals here i just sort of i knew what to do and i consulted with a lot of friends who deal with people with uh, autism or other you know neurodivergent kind of ways of thinking and we made this classroom well, and that's my point today. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about how interpreters and guides might actually employ AI. Um, and of course, I, I was totally unaware of how AI, artificial intelligence, works when you start trying to create images or do something beyond answer questions. And uh, yeah, this you, technology uh, snuck up on everybody. How how does it go when you meet a professor who's used to using conventional tools and you say, have you tried using chat GPT to think about your syllabus or your mm -hmm. next lecture or an assignment? I, <clears throat> so far, I notice I could... To say it simply, there's sort of three responses. There's one is this is great. I'm excited about it. I want to use it more. Uh, that's a that's a small small group. There's another group that's sort of like unsure. This is this is scary. Maybe it's going to help me. Maybe it's going to hurt me. I don't know. And then there's no, others that react to it very negatively. But my favorite response is a former uh, a guy a history professor of ours who's retired. I fix his, he and his wife's computers just because they're my neighbors and I help them out. And uh, I showed him ChatGPT and he's written 20 books on various historical topics that he felt were kind of underserved in the normal history curriculum. And I said, what's the next one you're writing, John? And he told me the subject and I told GPT to write me an eight chapter, an outline of an eight chapter book on that topic. And it spit it out. One, you know, one, two, three, four, 10 seconds later, he'd written the outline for eight chapter book. And John, who's a fairly buttoned up, very proper professional sort of guy said, holy shit. He was astounded. And we spent the next three hours with him throwing out prompts like you and I did yesterday. What about this? What about this? What about this? And in some ways it falls down, but in a lot of ways it will blow your mind with how helpful it can be. Yeah, I... I always think back, uh, I want to say 1981, 82, because you and I were living in Pueblo, Colorado. You were a child, uh, four years old, and Mac had not come out yet. The Apple IIe had, and I was afraid to not buy one. Mm. 
And I would say afraid to not buy one because I'm really aware that at different points in time, people, uh, <clears throat> we always use the term Luddites, which of course yep. was 1811 to 1816. There were the people who ran looms to make wool and cotton fabric were disturbed by the power looms that were coming online, afraid it was going to steal all their jobs. And Luddite has become that term. And these days, I, you know, can you imagine sitting down and writing with a typewriter now when you've got access to a microcomputer? It would be purely for the vintage, like ironical experience. But yeah, this is, but this is a common theme with humans. You know, our our learning styles and our teaching styles, which is really, I I think the greatest thing about us is the way we teach. We teach more effectively than the other earthlings do. There's other earthlings that use tools. There's other creatures that do some of the things we do, but we teach each other. And this is an earthquake. This is an earthquake to the classroom. This will change a lot of things, but so did the calculator. You know, I you and I were talking the other day about my music education. One of the first folk songs I learned was about John Henry and how the, you know, the hydraulic, whatever, the modernization, the industrial revolution obsoleted the greatest hammer striker, the greatest rail worker ever. And the lesson we're learning with AI is if you could sit John Henry down and go, you are the best of the best of the best at this job. And if you will learn how to use the new tool, you'll be even better because you already possess the expertise involving this process. Now let us just give you a better tool instead of competing with the new tool. Yeah, I, I always think of kind of in my career, 50 some years in interpretation, we were using uh, Kodachrome slides and ectographic projectors. And I can't imagine using that now when I can use, golly, we just recently bought one of those little uh, projectors Portable you, projector. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, I don't know, like four inches by four inches by two inches, and it will shoot a high lumen image at a wall or a screen. Uh, <clears throat> or even off an, I guess, off an iPad or off a iPhone. Yeah. They've come a long way. You're an early adopter. Um, something I was trying to explain to one of our professors who taught in the CVEX the other week. Uh, and was like, some of the students are engaging here, some of them are not. And I, I pointed out that this class, when I took it over, we played a video game. And because of you, because of uh, the households that I grew up in, I had access to a mouse and a keyboard basically as soon as they existed. So I'm a little anomalous for a Gen Xer. I'm really more like a millennial in terms of my built-in skills. I can touch type and I can use a mouse and keyboard. But there's also a differential of background of privilege. You take 15 kids and put them in this experimental classroom and say, let's play a video game or tell a story together. There's some kids who have not used a mouse and keyboard very much. They couldn't afford a full computer in their house from, from an early age. But when I give them one of these, a video game controller, which we keep on hand for when we do exercises like that, they light up, they get it. Because in America, we're, you know, the poorest household in America has very likely had an Xbox or a PlayStation or a Nintendo. And so we, we're 
just seeing that there's these economic differences, but everybody can be brought up to the same par. That's one of the beautiful things about this technology is it's it's getting cheap, it's getting available. People like myself that spent most of my life working with nature, with uh, interpretation of natural and cultural heritage, when they said artificial intelligence, I think of a robot and a computer sitting together somewhere, kind of a Star yeah. Wars look, talking yeah. to each other and inventing things. And actually, you say this AI that we're using started in a slightly different way, something like an, an LLM, which I don't know what in the world that is. Well, uh, we could take up your whole uh, episode with just LLMs, but they some of them started as sort of a, a mistake, a, a development that came out of trying to improve language translation AIs. So when you pull up your phone and say, you know, how do I say which way to the bathroom in Spanish? And you're asking a translation, which is a simpler AI. Well, the, the R&D departments for these places eventually got to the point where it wasn't just translating, it was talking. And they realized that it it doesn't just, it's not limited to its ability to go trans, get me words in Spanish. I can ask it, what was the weather last year? And if it has access to the information, it can fetch it very quickly. So it becomes this super-powered search engine. If you think search engines are cool, GPT can sift through the, the cloud of information in the modern era. And that's part of the biggest problem of the information age is we just all have access to too much. So the ability to filter out that noise and get what you want and get a straight answer in seconds is incredibly valuable. And it started from language translation. Yeah, I've often said when teaching in the classroom, this is the age of too much information. Yeah. And I don't mean that as a negative. I just mean it's hard to set your filters and figure out what to trust, where to get it, how much to take in. And that, doesn't that bring up the same caution that with AI, that it's just like anything you do on the internet, that you have to you have to vet your sources and make sure that it isn't picking up misinformation yeah. and delivering it with seeming clarity. Yeah, that's that's one concern, and the other would be hallucination. But just sticking with that first point, when we hire. IT diagnosticians, the sort of people that come to your office or come to your business and figure out why your computers aren't working. They solve the most difficult problems. What we want to hear when we interview these people, because we'll ask them technical questions over and over and over again. They'll answer it. They'll answer it. We want to find one where they don't know the answer, because what we want most out of a person in that job is not built-in knowledge. We want them to look us in the eye and say, I don't know, but I'll find the answer. I'll go ask my buddy, Jim, who owes me 10 favors. I'm amazing at Googling and sifting through the mess. And AI is amazing at that. Um, but it's not good at saying, I don't know. It does make a mistake. Generally, the language models, the LLMs, when you reach a point where they just don't know the answer, they will hallucinate one. They will make something up. And that's that's what you have to watch out for. Well, and LLM stands for large language models. You, mm -hmm. You've been using another term with me that I'd never heard before, generative AI. What is that? That's the image AIs where you say, generate me an image of a bonsai tree, which you you, you mentioned one earlier, and I ran it through, through mid-journey, and I was 
really impressed. Midjourney is very good at drawing bonsai trees. It can generate an image of one. You can choose the color. You can choose the background. You can choose any detail. And based on millions of photographs of bonsai trees or paintings or drawings of bonsai trees, it knows what to draw. So graphic artists ought to be terrified of this. Should they be afraid of this? It's easy to understand why they would be at first. At first glance, a lot of these AIs seem like, oh, they'll just replace you. Um, we can all imagine that because we don't want it to happen. But the reality is you give an image AI to someone like me, I can't paint. I know very little about uh, photography or graphic design or any of the visual arts. These AIs in my hands are very useful. I can produce pretty great images for a lot of different purposes. I can really punch up my PowerPoints. If you give them to someone who's a trained visual artist, if you give them to you, a veteran photographer who understands lighting and uh, exposures and all these other complicated things about photography, you will be even greater than I with it because it really is just a greater tool. You hand that superior hammer to John Henry and he'll be the best in the world again. Okay. Well, part of what astonished me when you first introduced me to this was that at least a beginner's uh, tool or toolkit, if you will, is absolutely free. I can go to chat GPT. Is it 3.5 of my correct? Yeah, name? you go to chat.openai.com, just openai.com, and you can use it for free. There are others that are also for free. This, this revolution is happening largely in the open source realm of software, so a lot of it is free or very low cost. Midjourney is the best generative AI. It's the best AI art program in the world, and it's 30 bucks a month. Wow. For unlimited. Yeah, and I know, and we're going to, by the way, for those of you who are listening, who've stuck with us through the geeky introduction, um, we're going to actually do some queries. I, I call them queries. What do you call them? Prompts. Prompts. Okay. We're going to use some prompts and see what chat GPT gives us in like three seconds and share that with you. And then the other thing we're doing is we've got a PowerPoint built around what we're talking about today. And by the time this airs, uh, we will actually have a video version of this particular podcast up on YouTube. And you can see the slideshow. It's going to give you those visuals that Toby and I can describe to you right now, but you can't see them. And uh, and some of the detail we're going to share with you is a little more detail than we want to, we don't want to read a whole slide to you. But you will be able to go see it, and I'll give you that information at the end of our podcast today. I guess I'm going to recommend to my friends and colleagues out there, experiment with chat uh, GPT 3.5. You said that's a Microsoft product? Yeah, OpenAI is a Microsoft thing. Microsoft is very all in on AI. You know, 10 years ago, they released a, a conversational AI on Twitter. And within a day, Twitter, the public had corrupted it into being a, a being a pure evil and they pulled the plug. But Microsoft learned a lot and they're they're really investing in this. They 
they believe it's the future and so does Amazon and so does Facebook. The prime, the most popular LLMs right now are Microsoft's and Meta's. Meta's is called Llama 2. I'd like to experiment with just how this applies to interpretation a little bit. I wish to choose among five titles for my talk on bison stewardship using fewer than seven words with an attention-getting phrase. Um, I'm going to run it through GPT-4, which is the smarter, newer. This is 20 bucks a month if you can afford such extravagance. And tell me the prompt again. I wish to choose among five titles for my talk on bison stewardship using fewer than seven words with an attention-getting phrase. Okay. It says choosing a title that's concise and attention-grabbing is a great way to spark interest in your talk on bison stewardship. Here are five suggestions, each according to your criteria. The first one is bison stewardship, reviving the majestic giants. The second one is guardians of the grasslands, bison's new hope. The next one is bison's future, our stewardship, their survival. Echoes of hooves, leading bison's comeback and nurturing giants, a bison stewardship tale. These aim to be evocative and thought-provoking, capturing the essence of bison's conservation and stewardship. How'd it do? Well, first of all, all five of those were different from the five it gave me on 3.5. There's a bit of randomness. Yeah. Uh, the language models are dynamic. They remind us, they, they don't work exactly like we do, but they sure remind us of a person because we all have this inherent creativity and, you know, we, we could answer the same question two different ways twice. So they tend to do that. And yet they were all virtually equivalent to the five they gave me before in, yeah. in the main, like they gave me bison revival paths to sustainable stewardship, guardians yeah. of the grasslands, saving bison. And I won't read the rest, but the point sure. is I'm always aware when I'm teaching a certified interpretive guide course and, especially with movies, people who are taking a seasonal guide position or they're a, they're a docent at a museum and maybe they've been a teacher their whole life. They might be somebody who's very experienced, but uh, when they're asked to come up with the title for the talk, very often to go, I'm talking about migratory birds. Yeah. Uh, okay. We need to be, I like to say hooky with our titles if we're yeah. trying to attract an audience to stand and visit with us for 30 um, minutes. So we, this is the common thread I see between your people who I grew up around my best, my first best friends were all interpreters. Uh, and my people, the it people is they possess and they've been to school or they've learned through years of experience, incredible expertise in a number of areas. And they don't necessarily have any training or expertise in PR. When you first started working for the Nature Center, you might then not have known how to write a press release or how to, you know, write a write a grant proposal or all these other things that were going to be thrust upon you that you're like, this isn't part of my job. I was hired to fix computer problems and and help customers. I can't write a letter to a dean explaining why we have to change the password policy. My guys are terrified of long form letters. And the first application I can tell you is sitting here thinking up a name for your bison program. GBT probably won't pick it exactly, but it will lead you to pick it. It'll lead you to the right answer. And if you've got to write an official letter, if you've got to write a grant proposal, if you've got to write a press release, if you've got to, you know, resign 
and you want to sound professional and nice, it will help you with that. It's a great collaborator. Yeah, and I, I like the word collaboration because um, <laughs> I've been having this discussion with a colleague who's staying with us right now, and he's teaching in China via Zoom. And the, the interesting thing was, his first reaction was, he said, I, I've been grading a lot of papers, and my students keep giving me phrases that sound exactly the same, making me think they all they all got it out of the same AI program. Should that be negative? And my reaction to it is, gee, I'm going to give somebody who bothers to use a new tool a C or a D, but I'm going to write a rubric that rewards them with a B or an A for using it thoughtfully, creatively, uniquely, and taking steps beyond what the AI gave it. And that's what yeah. Well, the AI is a very generic voice. If you let it write your paper completely for you, you will sound like every other GPT paper in the world, even though there will be some variants. If you write the paper yourself with plenty of spelling, grammar, errors, typos, maybe rewritten statements, doubled facts, and but it's yours. You wrote it and it's your ideas and it's your answer to the question you're being asked. And you turn that over to GPT and say, oh, please clean me up, make me look more professional, polish what I've written. Then it will sound like you. GPT will recognize your language, the words you like to use, your grammar structure. Then the finished product will be clean. It won't have any spelling or grammar errors. It might even tell you that your pacing's off, that you have front-loaded the paper with all the facts and there's nothing in the last half of it. But it'll it'll be you. And that's what we want to teach our teachers at SIU to get out of their writing students and what, you you know, the next generation of kids, they sort of see this as a shortcut to the finish line. It'll write my paper for me. Well, it'll do that badly and very generically. So if you learn to collaborate with it, that really is the best word, then it becomes a superpower. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I want to take another one here because one of the other things we teach people, and it's always a little bit of a stretch, is how to evaluate the programming they do, like a guided tour um, with program scope objectives. And I played with this a bit, and I know what I came up with. I want to see what you come up with using okay. your uh, chat GPT 4.0. Uh, the sure. problem I'm looking for is read is uh, create five program scope objectives easily measured in a tour about prairie restoration and bison. I use the uh, web search enabled plugin. So it's given me, it's detected that there's two different ways to answer this, but both of them focus on educational awareness. So we'll just go with this branch. So it's gonna say the, the first one is educational awareness, enhance the visitor's understanding of the ecosystem and the role of bison. And then the next one, it says, I'm summarizing because it wrote me a book, uh, community engagement, Engage local communities in restoration efforts by involving them. And then it has a measurement sub-objective for each one of these so that you can show your boss all the good, good stuff you did. Three, biodiversity promotion. Illustrate the importance of biodiversity by showcasing the recovery of native plant and animal species. Enough said. That's pretty much what I got the first time I did it. And 
I have just learned enough about this to realize that it overshot what I was trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. I went back and did this prompt. So I want you to, uh, if you will, type in this prompt to four sure. point regenerate five program scope objectives that are easily measured at end of a tour or program. For example, parentheses, make a donation to bison restoration, comma, volunteer to help restore prairie, comma, et cetera, parentheses. Hit that one for me. Okay. Certainly, here's five program scope objectives with easily measurable outcomes. And number one, financial contributions. And it's got a measurement scope for that of uh, goal of raising at least $2,000. I'm not sure what time frame it's thinking of there. Volunteer recruitment, membership enrollment, educational material distribution. Did they take a brochure with them? Did they, did they take a book with them? And then social media engagement, clicks and likes. Pretty easy to measure. These objectives are designed to create actionable outcomes that contribute to prairie and bison conservation efforts. Very cool. That's uh, It's a little different from what mine came up with using exactly the same words, but yeah. it's the same idea. And those those are actually good program scope objectives. Did they leave a well, donation? Some, How much? Some of the differences between 3.5 and 4 is that 3.5 is faster because it knows less. And four is a little slower. The text draws a little slower, but still seconds for a great answer. And I have the web-enabled version of four. So if you ask it something about today, it goes out and finds it. But even without doing that, 3.5 doesn't know anything past 2021. So four knows things up to 2022, and they're about to update it again. So things that have happened in the last year that greatly affect this sort of things. You know, if there was a mass extinction or a wildfire took out thousands of bison last year and it hit the news and it was very public, that would alter four's opinion and it wouldn't affect three at all. Right. Well, I, I was really aware that when this gave me answers, it also gave me underneath the objective and then the measurable outcome. And we yep. teach, we teach people that they should have a way of accurately assessing whether their program is good or not. You know, 50% uh, of my audience picked up a brochure. Yeah. 20% posted something on Facebook or uh, tripadvisor.com. And so mm -hmm. this nailed that. And, and yet this is a pretty complicated idea to teach in our certified interpretive guide course. And so I'm kind of intrigued by introducing people to the idea to do this and not just copy it, but then go back and say, okay, how realistic was each of these? Which ones might I actually use because it really targets something I want to know? Yeah. And you are, and I would say this to all of your, all of your people so far, I've introduced this technology to so many different professions in the last six months. And the, the common thread is that your expertise and your experience matters a lot you will ask this thing a couple questions that you think are going to be too hard for it and it will impress you. And then you are on the verge of pushing it into an area where it gets the answer wrong and it goes the wrong direction. And then that's when it's time for you, the expert, to give GPT the information. If you type two paragraphs in the, into this thing and explain what it's getting wrong, 
it'll get that, absorb it, remember it, and be that much smarter next time you talk to it. Yeah, that's uh, that's what astonished me. As soon as I gave it the two examples in the parentheses, Mm -hmm. it spit back five that echoed the two I gave it, but it gave me three additional ones that made sense. And, uh, you know, that's cool. Uh, Let me let me do one uh, additional one. One of the things that any guide or interpreter is dealing with is if I'm doing a new talk, I've never given before a new tour, where do I find reliable information? So yeah. what, what I want you to do is ask uh, 4.0, mm-hmm. what five sor- sources of very reliable information on prairie restoration? Okay, it is, okay, well, 4.0, I have the switch on that allows it to browse the web now. So it is browsing and it is going two branches. Smithsonian National Zoo is number one. UNI ScholarWorks on this branch and then University of Northern Iowa ScholarWorks. Yeah. Science News, Prairie Revival, U of I, Tailgrass Prairie Program, um, Missouri Prairie Foundation and U.S. National Park Service. I'm not sure what caused it to branch there, but it ended up on the same basic five points. And you came up with a couple of the same ones as yeah. 3.5, but some were different. This 3.5 came up with the Prairie Ecologist, a blog by Chris Heltzer, a uh, knowledgeable ecologist. Uh, the Nature Conservancy, which is always uh, a potential authority on some of this. U.S. Department of Agricultural Natural Resources Conservation Area. Conservation Service and the Prairie Plains Resource Institute, and then the Tallgrass Prairie Center, the same one you quoted from University yeah. of Iowa. Well, here's the point: we could do this on our own. I could do it with Google. Let me add this: the since I use 4.0 and it's web enabled, it gave me a link after every one of these. I can just one click to take me there. Oh, cool! Wow. Well. Part of the point is that this isn't very much different from what Google does, right? It's This part isn't. No, this is just advanced Googling. It's I use it for this, though, because there's no ads. There's no spam. There's no Russian hackers in this list. It is quality information vetted by GPT. AI takes us to a sort of gray area. In the next couple of years, we're going to have to fight about this. Right now, the, the general... The legal profession has sort of uh, thrown in the towel until there's legislation, I think. They've sort of declared that most of these works are nobody's legal property, not the programmer, not the prompter, not the people that inspired it. It's a new, new area. So what we hope to teach our students at SIU, and we hope to teach the teachers this too, is that if you use this responsibly, you're not going to go wrong with it. You're not going to do something you regret. You're not going to get in trouble. If you try to just autopilot your bachelor's degree, you'll 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 be in trouble pretty quickly. Now we try to teach interpreters that if you want to quote someone or share uh, a picture yeah. of their, it's okay under fair use uh, law related to education. But as soon as you start co-opting it, you you claim it or you actually alter it a little bit and put your name on it, you you've stepped off the edge of ethical use so you know uh there was a a situation recently where someone submitted a professional paper stating a thing supporting a concept and citing sources 
and it got published. And then people realized that it was a very kind of strange opinion against the, the current grain. And they looked at it and the references were all made up. The person had had GPT write a professional paper for them, submitted it, gotten published, and it was all fake. And so they're in big trouble right now. And the whole profession is thinking of, you know, banning AI involvement in their publications, which is an understandable first reaction. But hopefully we get to a place where it's like you're you really need to punish the choice, the act of the human here, not the the tool they use to do it. Yeah, I think the big point is that we still have ethical standards about everything we do in publishing yep. and and interpretation, those still apply. Escape mm-hmm. from those by using AI. I wanted to do another little thing, if you don't mind. Sure. Get into uh, guides and interpreters. Guides, not so much as interpreters. Uh, guides very often are taking people on tours of sites they don't own. Yeah. Uh, it could be the, as I was, a park interpreter at a park where you interpret it for the state or the county or the federal government. Um, ask 4.0, if you will, to write text for a sign about redwoods that have stood for 3,000 years as history happens around them. Okay. Text for a sign. It may give us a whole page here. Um, with GPT, it's very wordy. You want to? It's it's already into the second paragraph here. It's titled "It Sentinels of Time: The Ancient Redwoods." Subtitle: Standing Tall Through Millennia. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gone like a full prose on this. Okay, good. That's what I wanted it to do. Now, what I want you to do is to say, regenerate mm-hmm. this fifty words or fewer. Well, since GPT is a conversation, I'm just going to say, say that in 50 words or less, please, in case they do rule the world someday, we want to be polite to them now. Here's the summary. These majestic redwoods have stood for 3000 years, silently witnessing history unfold. Each ring in their trunks captures a year of the ever-changing world, while their towering presence reminds us of nature's enduring spirit amidst the fleeting endeavors of humanity. Ooh, that's kind of a diss. Reflect on the timeless bond between earth and sky as you stroll amongst these ancient giants. I got I got an angle on this one for you, Dad. Say that, but more ominously. For 3,000 years, these ominous redwoods have stood, their eerie silence witnessing the relentless march of history, each ring in their ancient trunks a somber echo of the years gone by amidst the ceaseless human tumult. Again, the shade. As you wander beneath their towering shadows, feel the chilling whispers of an ageless bond between earth and sky. Stupid, puny human. Okay. It didn't say that. I said that last part. Ask ask it to do the same thing in 15 words or less. Amid relentless history, these ominous redwoods stand, their rings echoing past tumult beneath towering shadows. That that got a little gibberish. That that mangled it pretty good. I might go back to the original prompts, the longer text you gave it, and say, say this in 15 words. Or I could just regenerate it a few times until it lands better. Well, and the part we can't show people right this moment is... Uh, I shared this prompt with you a couple days ago, and I came up with a different answer. These towering redwoods have witnessed 3,000 years of history. Silent watchers to the passage of time, they hold stories of generations. You put it on a sign 
in a redwood forest. What did you mm -hmm. use to eat that redwood forest and suck sign slide that I'm I'm looking at? The image I used Midjourney. Any of the image AIs could have done that. Midjourney is my, my favorite. I've worked with it the most. At first glance, you'll sit at an, at an image AI and say, draw me a bonsai tree, and you'll get a beautiful image of a bonsai tree. And you'll think, wow, this is super easy. But getting a specific thing out of the AI is tough. It's a little random. You have to communicate with it. You have to use words. The the chief AI engineer at Oxford is a guy named Ajit Jaukar. He's friends with Pinkney, my new boss. And Ajit, Ajit says the most important programming language in the world right now is English or whatever language you're speaking with your AI, because what you ask for is eventually what you get. And so I'm trying to remember, let's see, Redwood, I'll look at my old prompts, but yeah, oh, I've got it right here. Uh, a blank sign in front of a Redwood Forest National Park DSLR photograph. That was the prompt I gave it. And it drew me uh, the picture that you can see in the attached video that dad's going to post later. So you're telling it to, you, to try to make it look like a digital single lens reflex camera photo. DSLR. Oh, it goes, it goes even deeper than that. I knew I was doing it for you and I knew you'd been there. And I knew probably a couple of times, right? You big nerd. And so I also know you're a big photography nerd, both the old style and DSLR. I've seen you hang off the side of the Royal Gorge by one leg with your $1,500 Nikon dangling below you. And so I use the term DSLR photograph because I wanted the way you would expect it to look. And Midjourney can be that specific. I could have said oil painting. I could have said watercolor. I could have said cartoon art or future art. I could have said 60s retro wave. It'll draw in whatever style you want. But my audience was someone who would appreciate a, a good photograph of those trees. What does Midjourney cost? The base level is 10 bucks a month. And you'll get addicted to it real fast because it's very fun and very effective. And you'll, the $30 a month version that I use is unlimited. You can produce thousands of photos per month. Now, I, I played with it and wasn't very successful, but I didn't use that one. I used a different one. I go with Midjourney because I either get from Midjourney the result I want or the result I didn't know I wanted. When I think of all the applications of this, it still comes down to just what you said earlier, collaboration. Museums, zoos, some of these places are starting to use virtual reality as a part of the thing where they can create a tour online. Yep. For well, you know the tour, didn't they used to do it at Alcatraz where you'd put on a little headset, and walk around and listen to a sort of audio tour? That's That's been done in a few places, right? Well... All over the all over the world. Well, um, the new version of that is you show up at the the site. You show up at whatever the Alcatraz, and you put on a VR headset, and you see everything around you normally. It doesn't blind you. It doesn't block out the real world. You're looking because you're at the site. You want to see the site for real. What it does is like this pop up information option. Oh, wow. If you look at an individual cell and you're like, who was in there? A list of every inmate that was ever in there scrolls down for you. If you want, 
goes away if you don't want it. You look out in the yard and you can see uh, the history of what it looked like. You can pull up photos from any moment. You walk through, you experience the site for real because you're there and that's why you went there. You just also have the option to contextually absorb all those details that you normally would have to research for hours on your own to understand, and you wouldn't be at the site anymore. So it allows the person in place to just get more out of a visit without, without removing any of the quality of the visit itself. Interesting, because uh, Lisa and I have rented those. We rented them at, in Bath in uh, Great Britain <laughs> at the Roman Baths. And yeah. after, after two stops, they were hanging around our necks. We were no longer listening to them. They were boring as heck. Yeah. Well, I'll give you another example of the AR. AR is about to have a revolution too. Right now, AI is kind of stealing the fort, the the stage for us. Most of our projects are in AI. Everybody wants to know about it. Everybody's afraid of it. But AR is about to have a big moment because the Quest 3 is 500 bucks and when you put it on, you can see around you like you're not wearing a headset. If it was weightless or very, if it was much lighter, you would forget it's there because you can just see out of it. And you can stand in your kitchen and look at all the ingredients on your kitchen counter, the spices, the vegetables, the whatever, and take a picture of that with the headset, ask GPT to tell you, what can I cook with these ingredients? It will give you the recipe and float it in the air over your kitchen counter while you chop vegetables and go back and forth. You can put YouTube over here. You can put the game up here and, and keep track of your Broncos. It, it allows you to just have virtual screens and you in particular, because you love your view and you love where you live and your neighborhood and stuff, can sit out on your lanai and have your email just floating next to you while you're enjoying that incredible sunset. This was kind of the vision several years ago when they were creating those glasses that you could wear that supposedly would do that. But the, tech wasn't, the tech wasn't there yet. Neither the projection tech nor the, the VR tech. Like it's all come a few steps ahead. Apple's headset's about to be the best at it, but also $3,000. These days that uh, it's going to change so rapidly that it's just going to be a new ball game every year for the next few years until some of this settles down a bit. Yes, but just as we look now for IT technicians who don't have Windows 98 procedures memorized, they have the concepts learned and they have the ability to self-teach and they understand the principles involved. That's what will carry you forward. That's why I say experiment with mid-journey, experiment with stable diffusion, get the idea of how it works, what it can do. Don't worry about mastering any one thing. Certified interpretive guide course, an important part of it is we teach that people remember themes, they forget facts. They yeah. think it's kind of a, a mental basket for carrying the facts. If I give people facts that relate to my theme, they're more likely yeah. to the theme, but three days later, the facts uh, just dis dissipate in our memory. I tried writing themes, and I want to do that for a moment with you, if you will. Sure. If I'm interested in bonsai trees and Japanese traditions, mm -hmm. what are five ideas for related themes, expressing these themes as complete sentences? Okay. Thinking artistic impression let's see it says bonsai trees are a form of living art 
where meticulous shaping and nurturing embody the artist's vision, transforming a simple tree into an aesthetic masterpiece. Yeah, it's got a good, it's got five of them. You want them all? Yeah. yeah at least okay. Sure. It has a theme for each one. The next one is patience and dedication. The cultivation of a bonsai tree demands patience and dedication as its lifelong endeavor where growth and refinement occur slowly over time. Harmony with nature, bonsai cultivation fosters a deep connection with nature, encouraging a harmonious relationship between the grower, the tree, and the environment. Wow. Next one is simplicity and minimalism. The minimalist design of the bonsai tree achieved through careful pruning and shaping reflects a philosophy of simplicity and the beauty inherent in the understated. That's pretty good. And then finishes with tradition and cultural heritage. Bonsai trees are deeply rooted in tradition and cultural heritage, representing an ancient form that bridges past and present through living, breathing sculptures. Those are all pretty different. I kind of like them all. Here's the thing. I watch people struggle. I'll say, what are you interested in? They go, I'm interested in birds, migratory birds. Well, what do you want me to understand about migratory birds? Uh, migratory birds travel thousands of miles to find favorable environments for food and reproduction. Okay. And that's part of what uh, is easy for some people is to answer that question. What do you want me to understand about migratory birds? Yeah. Some people struggle with it. They go, oh, migratory birds, uh, they fly. They, uh, and they, they break it down into phrases. And well, I'll, I'll take that a step further. Um, perhaps you're familiar with the ornithologist, Kathy Hutchison. I'm about to take 20 years of her hummingbird banding data and give it to this AI and what it will enable us to do is it will look at it all. It will absorb it in, in the moment, have it in its mind. And then you can say, what years were the birds the fattest? What years did they arrive the earliest, leave the latest? And you can say, how does this bird migration data relate to climate change? And it can relate that to other data that it has access to, or it can Google, it can go out and web search and relate your data correlate it with things, come up with all kinds of spurious correlations that you then have to knock down. But you'll have a conversation with, you know, this supercomputer that's able to speed read your data with you, not for you, with you. It needs you. Otherwise, it will go astray immediately. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, by the way, uh, Toby just was referring to an ornithologist who's his mother. And was was my wife for a decade. You guys met at one point. Yeah, that's, you uh, know her if you. And she's really a bird bander. She's banded a lot of hummingbirds. Around 6,000 a year. I don't, as far as we know, I think she's one of the, she's banded as, as many or more hummingbirds than anybody else. Oh, cool. An interpreter or a guide probably doesn't do very often a specific research like that. But yeah. many of us are trained as biologists or historians. Yeah. And to know, that, mm -hmm. I've been amused that when I've asked it something and it gives me information, and I think the information's wrong based on my experience, I'll say that back to it. And the program comes back with, I apologize. I have regenerated an answer that should be more accurate. 
it's we probably won't get into it too much this time but it can write computer programs it speaks computer coding languages as well as it speaks english spanish german and i was coding software with it the other week and what it gave me didn't work and i pasted the error that i got back to gpt and i said this code you gave me for this little program didn't work and it said oh i'm sorry i made a mistake and I thought it was this type of variable when it was another type of variable. I've corrected it. Please try this again. It's super polite. That's why I don't have the, ever have the heart to be mean to it. It's very, very pleasant. <laughs> I want to suggest to interpreters, guides, people in the interpretive profession that here's an opportunity for us to not be a Luddite, to be a new adopter, to step up and learn something about it. It doesn't take away our responsibility to make intriguing programs that engage people, that get them to think more deeply about where they are or the story yeah. they're experiencing. Uh, we, we still have the same basic principles of interpretation that we have to honor, but it might get us to the next stage quicker. And I, I think the really cool part of that is uh, you would have more time to spend on fine tuning your talk or your tour. That is the payoff. Yeah. No matter what your profession is, you have probably bureaucratic procedures that you hate. You have emails you've got to send or read. You can take a five-page email from work and say, GPT, summarize the bullet points of this, and it will do it in a second. And you just want to be careful that it's 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 really very accurate at that. It does because that's no chance for it to hallucinate. That's you know shrinking information rather than inventing it. So it's great for that. And writing official letters, organizing things, it's it's a big help on bureaucracy. Believe it or not. What would you recommend to someone to improve their own understanding of AI, VR, all of these uh, new things? Where do they go for training? YouTube is the single greatest resource of knowledge on planet Earth. It's also one of the biggest sewer pipes of filth. So, you know, consider that as you peruse it. But um, there are more how-tos, demonstrations, explanations of AI and all these other things on YouTube than anywhere. But since GPT is free, you'd probably benefit the most by just going and having the weirdest chat of your life with GPT. Go talk to it like it's a person. Don't, it, it, it is a super duper Google. It is that. But if you go into GPT and say, GPT, I'm depressed. What do I do about it? It will send you to professional help. It'll recommend you kind of fix this and that. If you say GPT, how do I change a tire? It'll help you find descriptions for that. If you say, GPT, how do I tell this person I like that I like them? It'll even give you, and it's not just a robot telling you how to be a human. It's going and getting you human information and human ideas and just parsing it for you. Every Everything like this has to be respected. We have to talk about it. We are certainly in the next several years going to have to legislate about AI. There's just nothing right now. We are floating wild and free. And yeah, movies and science fiction books tell a tale of 
of us turning it loose, giving it the keys to all of our military hardware and it immediately pointing our own guns at us. That's not something that anybody's doing or wants to do and not something that's likely to happen. More likely as we creep up and we learn to use this thing as a new collaborator, a new tool, a new friend, GPT seems like a human thinking thing. It actually isn't. And if you experiment with it, you'll see very quickly that it has no, it has the, the attention span of a gnat and it doesn't remember what you talked about yesterday necessarily. So it is an instance of intelligence. It is not an intelligence yet, but yeah. we are headed there. We will have to face that question. We will have to be careful. We will have to not create our own doom. Yeah. Well, guess what? We've built all sorts of weapons. Oh, that yeah. Have been pointed at us. And so. Well, a mixture of the industrial revolution and the nuclear arms race, we've already we've already punched ourselves in the face pretty hard. Uh, if anything, this tool promises to do more good than harm and help us undo the damage we did with those other things. I like it. Part of what I have been doing is thinking about how I incorporate it into the interpretive guide course and help people use it in a responsible manner. Yep. I know natu naturalists, historians, interpreters that are so wonderfully skilled at what they do that they'll never touch this and they'll still do great programming and that's good. But yeah, I, they don't need it. Yeah. But <clears throat> a new generation of young people that are used to using that are digital natives. You and a, you and a few other people I've known are early adopters and yeah. you're, you're going to do fine with it. What I want to do is I know at, I've worked at the school a while. I know a hundred teachers who are wonderful teachers who are always available to the students. They're invigorated by teaching. They love it. And they don't know what to think about this. So I want to make sure that they are equipped with all the right information to make it an ally, to collaborate with it rather than go to war against it because they'll lose. That's a good idea. Well, thanks for doing this today with me. It's always great sure. to see you. And since we do this by Zoom, we can see it and our listeners cannot. But I would invite our listener to go to YouTube. Thanks for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Join us next week when I'll be talking with Cara Garaleo in the Philippines. She's a guide, interpretive planner, interpretive trainer, and she will help us learn more about what's going on in the Philippines related to interpretation. She recently earned the Certified Interpretive Guide credential in one of our virtual CIG courses. I have a virtual CIG course coming up December 4th to 13th via Zoom. You can register at interpnet.com. I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music. This time, Buckminster Waltz on his Coffee and Cake album. Thanks for joining us today. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.